guys, welcome back to another episode of On The Mix. I'm your host, Lindsay, and today I'm really excited to talk to you guys about this episode in particular because I have known about this whole story for as long as I can remember, and it's been a story that has really affected me for so long being a fan of music. It's a crazy story, and it's dubbed The Day The Music Died. That was dubbed by Don McLean, who does the song American Pie. In that song, he talks all about this entire story of what happens. And I know everyone knows that song American Pie. So I thought I would talk to you guys today about the day that the music died. So there are three main players that take place in this story. There's Buddy Holly, there's Richie Valens, and there's the Big Bopper. If you guys don't know any of those people, well, you're in luck because I'm here to tell you about each of their backgrounds a little bit, and then we'll dive deep into the story. Without further ado, let's get started with who is Buddy Holly? Well, he was born Charles Hardin Holly on September 7th, 1936 in Lubbock, Texas. His parents bought him a guitar from a pawn shop, and his brother Travis taught him how to play the guitar. So all around his hometown, he was performing. He was becoming somewhat of a local music legend. He initially was country and Western, but then he started blending more of this R&B flavor into his music, which helped him in the charts and it helped him to become a lot more popular with his music. By 1955, he graduated Lubbock High School and he decided to pursue a full-time career in music. He was further encouraged to have his own full-time music career after he saw Elvis Presley perform live in Lubbock. And Buddy would open for Elvis in February at the Fair Park Coliseum, and then again in April at the Cotton Club, and then again in June at the Coliseum. So Elvis was now becoming aware of who this Buddy Holly kid was. That's very impressive. That's how you know that Buddy was extremely talented. And it was by this time that his style shifted from specifically country and western into rock and roll after he had seen Elvis perform a million and one times. By October of 1955, he was booked with Bill Haley and his Comets, and Buddy was the opening act. There was a Nashville music scout there. His name was Eddie Crandall. He was in the audience, and Eddie was so impressed. He persuaded Grand Ole Opry manager Jim Denny to inquire about a recording contract for Buddy. But Buddy was signed to Decca Records, which was a massive recording company, in February 1956. In the contract, Decca ended up misspelling Holly's last name as H-O-L-L-Y. His last name was actually spelled with an E-Y. So from then on, Buddy just took that and said, okay, I'm now known as Buddy Holly without the E. Also, I must say, Buddy Holly is extremely influential, not only for his music, but for his look. He has those interesting, almost Ray-Ban style glasses, the thick black rims that are so popular now. So he kind of actually inspired that sort of fashion, especially with eyewear, because back then people didn't want to wear glasses because they didn't want to be perceived as nerdy. But Buddy Holly didn't really care about that. He had a really horrible time with Decca during this time period. Like a lot of the songs that he was to create while he was with Decca, they never really landed in the charts anywhere. And a year later in 1957, Decca would inform Buddy that his contract wouldn't be renewed, but insisted he couldn't record the same songs for anyone else for five years, meaning 
all the singles he recorded with Decca, he couldn't re-record them and republish them to another record label for five years. But he pursued on. He was inspired by the success of people like Buddy Knox with his song Party Doll and Jimmy Bowen with his song I'm Sticking With You. And he visited a man named Norman Petty who had produced and promoted both of those records that he really liked. He went to Norman's studio in Clovis, New Mexico, and Buddy, with his group of session musicians, created a song called That'll Be The Day. This is one of his most famous songs of all time. Buddy now was playing lead guitar as well as doing the vocals. And now finally, Buddy felt like he could achieve the sound that he had always wanted because now he had not only creative control, but he was able to do what he wanted to do in the studio and with his own music. So it was great. Norman ended up becoming his manager, and he sent this song over to Brunswick Records in New York City. However, Buddy was still under contract with Decca, so he couldn't release this song under his own name. So Buddy with the session musicians joined together as a band, and they came out with that record under the name The Crickets. The song officially was released under that name on May 27, 1957. And then their debut album called The Chirping Crickets was released in November of that year. So between this time period and 1959, Buddy would kind of go and he would create a lot of really famous songs. He created the song Every Day, which is probably his most well-known song that people probably know him by. He created Peggy Sue. He created Rayvon. There are so many rockabilly songs that he created and covered that are so well-known. He then also went on an international tour. He performed with such people like Paul Anka, Jerry Lee Lewis. And it was when he was in this time period of doing his tour and then having his own solo album that he met his future wife, Maria Santiago. The first time that they met, he asked her out. And then on their first date, he proposed marriage to her. It ended up working out because they got married on August the 15th, 1958. A lot of the musicians were upset with Norman at this time because they thought that Norman was taking a lot of money that the band was making for himself. He was taking more than his usual cut. So at this point in time, what I thought was really fascinating that I actually never knew about Buddy Holly, he was actually considering Possibly not maybe leaving music behind entirely, but taking on a different avenue similarly to Elvis where he wanted to do acting. So Buddy and Maria, his wife, they went to a lot of New York music venues and they loved New York to the point where Buddy and her wanted to move to New York permanently, which is crazy because Buddy was from Texas. And so to move to a new state like that would require a lot. And so it required a lot of money, of course, right? So that's also where the whole start of the events that lead to their death happened from, you know? It's so interesting to me that Buddy truly wanted to be an actor. Like, he had ambitions to work in the film industry, and he actually went as far as registering for acting classes with Lee Strasberg's actor studio. So he was going to work with the greatest. Unfortunately, he never had the opportunity to do it. Now let's dive into Richie Valens and who Richie is. Richie was born Richard Stephen Valenzuela in Pacoma, which is a neighborhood in San Fernando in Los Angeles. Richie was brought up hearing traditional Mexican mariachi and flamenco music, R&B and blues as well. So he took an interest in making music on his own by the age of five, which is crazy. 
He was actually so enamored with music that even though he was left-handed, he mastered how to play the guitar traditionally in the right-handed way, which is literally insane. So he became quite ambidextrous, which is interesting because he just had such a passion for wanting to play music. So Richie was 15 years old when he was a student at Pacoma Junior High School in the San Fernando Valley. At this time in 1957, there was this mid-air collision wherein two planes ended up crashing into each other. The planes crashed right into the school ground of his high school. Not a lot of children, but some children died and some children got extremely injured because the planes crashed and landed right on the schoolyard. Richie was not there physically to see this happen because he was at his grandfather's funeral at the time, but he got PTSD from the fact that this happened so close to home. He knew children that got injured, and this affected him so severely that this, number one, created a fear of flying for him, and number two, he had reoccurring nightmares of planes crashing. When Richie was 16, he was invited to join a local band called The Silhouettes, and on October 19, 1957, he made his performing debut with The Silhouettes as a guitarist, but then eventually became the lead singer. Bob Keane, who was the owner and president of a small recording label called Delphi Records in Hollywood, was told about a young performer named Richard Valenzuela, and kids around the block knew him as the performer that was, quote, the little Richard of San Fernando, end quote. So Richie was really making a name for himself, and he was only 16. So Bob, very intrigued upon hearing this, goes to see Richie play at a movie theater in San Fernando one day and he was blown away. He was so impressed by this performance that he invited Richie to audition for Delphi Records at his home in Silver Lake, where he had a small recording studio in his basement. After this first audition, Richie was immediately signed to Delphi Records on May 27, 1958, and at this point, he then adopted the name Richie Valens. His first songs that were recorded were at Gold Star Studios. It was recorded in a single studio session in one day, in July of 1958. All of those songs are extremely popular, notably his song, Come On, Let's Go. This was one of the first songs, and it was an original that he did. And then he had his probably most famous song called La Bamba. So he's recorded that song, and he also recorded the song called Donna, which was written about his real-time girlfriend, Donna Ludwig, at this time. La Bamba actually sold over 1 million copies, and it was awarded a gold disc by the Recording Industry Association of America. At this point now, by the autumn of 1958, he was so in demand with his music career. He was going on TV, doing the American Bandstand, and all these other amazing things at this time that he had to drop out of high school. He couldn't continue to pursue his education. Unfortunately, his life would be cut short because he was only 17, and then he ends up passing away sometime later. That is the background of Richie Valens. Now let's get into the short background of the Big Bopper. For some reason, I guess most people only know of a couple of things. Most notably, he was born Giles Perry or J.P. Richardson Jr. in Sabine, Texas on October the 24th, 1930. He actually studied law at Lamar College and was a member of the band and choir at Lamar College. During this time, he worked part-time at KTRM Radio, where in 1949, he was hired full-time and ended up leaving college quitting his law degree and working full-time at the radio station. After he was discharged from the Army in 1957, he ended up then becoming a full-blown disc jockey. So that's already a massive jump. 
He quit his law degree. He was in the army for two years. He had a rank of corporal. And then he goes and he does music at a local radio station. One of the station's sponsors wanted him for a new time slot and suggested a gimmick for the show. He noticed that all the college kids were doing a dance called the bop, so he decided to become known as the Big Bopper. He created this persona known as the Big Bopper under this new radio show that he was doing, and it was going pretty good. He actually had musical talent, like he knew how to play the guitar, and he would play the guitar often. And he actually was so talented that he gave a couple of musicians some songs that he had written and they became number one hits. So the classic example is this musician at the time named George Jones. He recorded a song called White Lightning, which was written by the Big Bopper, and it became George's first number one country hit in 1959. And like I already insinuated at the beginning of the episode, the Big Bopper had his own musical abilities and he wrote a song called Chantilly Lace. He had a first single, initial single, called Beggar to a King, but it failed in the charts. So he ended up switching over to doing something a bit more eclectic. This Chantilly Lace was like a comedy song. Essentially, on the song, he pretends to call his girlfriend, and you can only hear what he says to the girl on the phone. It's a really catchy song. It actually reached number six on the pop charts and spent 22 weeks on the national top 40 charts. But that is the background of all three musicians. Now, we're setting up, unfortunately, how these men would end up dying in a cornfield in 1959. So let me break down for you the key players of this story. There's Buddy Holly, Richie Valens, the Big Bopper, and there's the pilot. His name is Roger Peterson. In November of 1958, Buddy ends up leaving the crickets but he needs to go on tour again because he needed to raise funds to move to New York with his wife, Maria. And Maria was pregnant at this point in time. So like I mentioned, he wanted to move to New York. He wanted to pursue acting, but Buddy needed some money to move to New York. So he decided, let's put together a tour and let's get all of these cool hip musicians of the time that have like number one records out at this time. And let's create what's known as the Winter Dance Party Tour. Buddy's band consisted of Waylon Jennings, who is a massive popular country musician, Tommy Alsup, and Carl Bunch. This winter dance party tour covered 24 Midwestern cities in as many days as possible. So literally 24 days, every single day there was a show, which you can already imagine would have a lot of issues, and it did. Richie Valens ends up joining. The Big Bopper ends up joining, and Dion and the Belmonts also end up joining, and Dion and the Belmonts were a popular band from New York City. All of them joined on this tour. And the tour began in 1959 in Milwaukee, Wisconsin on January the 23rd. So as you can well imagine, every single day there was supposed to be a show, and it was literally just the production company that would create this tour and then the musicians. And the musicians were responsible for getting from venue to venue. And a lot of these venues were all over the place. It wasn't even well thought out or considered based on all the venues that they were due in order. It made no sense. Some of them, they'd backtrack and go to various cities they had just played. It was all spread out all over the place. And this created so many issues. A reconditioned school bus that they were all in hodgepodge all in there together, all of these musicians, right? 
driving on this rickety old school bus to all these venues. And this is in the middle of winter in the Midwest in January, February. Can you imagine how cold it would be? Sometimes it went to sub-zero freezing temperatures and there'd be snow, there'd be winds, there'd be ice. The bus would break down notoriously and they'd have so many issues getting on this bus and getting this bus from place to place. And a lot of these guys were not sleeping either. So they were restless. They were angry and frustrated that this bus that they were on, they'd have to get numerous buses, by the way. Sometimes they couldn't fix the bus. They'd have to get numerous buses. They were so upset that this happened. This was dubbed actually as the tour from hell because of this particular situation. Sometimes they travel between 10 to 12 hours every single day to get from venue to venue. And this was at a point in time where the interstate highways, most of them, had not been built yet. They literally had to travel on like a rural two-lane highway. What's also a very unfortunate aspect of this whole thing was, again, because they didn't have roadies to help them unload their music equipment and then like load it back on the bus when they were done, they had to do that themselves every single show. And that was wearing thin on them, again, considering the time crunch that they were under. In order to get from venue to venue, again, traveling 10 to 12 hours sometimes in sub-freezing temperatures, hundreds of miles in a day. And the bus was just simply not equipped to deal with this kind of winter weather. Buddy Holly, the Big Bopper, and Richie Valens, who all lived in the South and in the West Coast, they were not well-equipped to handle this kind of winter weather to the point where Richie Valens, his mom, actually had to mail him a coat Some of them ended up getting sick. The Big Bopper and Richie Valens experienced flu-like symptoms, and the drummer for Buddy Holly's band was hospitalized one day because the bus broke down one day and they couldn't get it fixed. So this was in like the dead of night. No one was on the road. This is like a horror story playing out. No one was seen for miles. They had to stand in the middle of the road in the sub-zero temperatures for a hope and a prayer that someone would come along and eventually a cop car showed up and ended up taking them to where they needed to go. But the drummer for Buddy Holly's band ended up getting a bad case of frostbite on his feet because he stood in the street for all those hours in Michigan. Unfortunately, the drummer was never able to meet up with the rest of the band. So that's where this then sets up to the events that transpire on this fateful day, Monday, February the 2nd. The tour arrived in Clear Lake. They drove 350 miles the night before from Wisconsin. Clear Lake hadn't been a scheduled stop though. It was a very rare open date on their calendar. And what were they to do? They had to fill that date. So tour promoters told them to go play at this club called the Surf Ballroom, and this is where they would have their very last performance. By the time all the musicians arrived at the Surf Ballroom, Buddy was pissed about all the issues with the bus. Like, it was just getting to a point where he couldn't handle it, and I believe at this point in time they were on tour date number 11 out of 24. The next stop was in Moorhead, Minnesota, which was about another 360-mile drive. And Buddy just couldn't deal with it anymore. He needed something else. He needed a new solution to this problem. So he tried to charter a plane 
to fly him and his band to Fargo, North Dakota, which is right next to Moorhead. And then from there, they can stop at a hotel, they can rest, and then they can travel on bus or car to the venue that they needed to go to next. Buddy thought, this is great. I can charter a plane. This would save me the journey of going on that stupid rickety old bus and we can rest. All is good. So after their show at the surf ballroom, Buddy goes to the owner of the surf ballroom named Carol Anderson and he asks him, hey, are you familiar with any planes here that I could charter for me and my band to go to North Dakota? Anderson ended up ringing Dwyer Flying Service in Mason City to inquire about a plane so that they could fly to Hector Airport, which is the closest one to their official destination of Moorhead, Minnesota. They, in fact, on this day did have a pilot and his name was Roger Peterson and he was 21 years old. He was a local pilot who was described as a, quote, young married man who built his life around flying, end quote. The flying service asked for a $36 fee per person on the flight. And this plane that they had available was a four-passenger seated plane. So the pilot plus three other people. There was something that needed to be done about this in terms of who was going to go with Buddy. Now, there's a lot of varying details in this story that happened next at this point in time that get confused because people hear varying things. But the accepted version of events is that either the Big Bopper or Richie Valens had the flu during this tour. So the Big Bopper, he asked Waylon Jennings for his seat on the plane. So when Buddy learned that Waylon wasn't actually going to fly after all, Buddy said jokingly to him, quote, well, I hope your damn bus freezes up, end quote. Waylon would end up retorting back to Buddy, quote, well, I hope your old plane crashes, end quote. So it's Buddy Holly now and the Big Bopper that are on the plane now. Now there's one vacant seat. So who's going to go and take up the vacant seat? Well, Richie Valens was also sick. And because he didn't want to go on the bus as well, he asked Tommy Alsup for his seat on the plane. What happens here is known that there was a coin toss that ends up happening. People think that Dion of Dion and the Belmonts was actually the one that did the coin toss with Richie and not Tommy Alsup. It's confusing of which person was actually doing the coin toss with Richie Valens, but what we know as a fact, though, is that there was a coin toss that did end up happening, which is really, really crazy. Bob Hale, who was a DJ for Mason City's KRIB AM station, was looking over the concert that night, and he was there to flip the coin in the surf ballroom side stage before the musicians would leave for the airport. So he flipped this coin. Richie ended up winning the coin toss. Allegedly, apparently, Richie said, that's the first time I've ever won anything in my life. That's the story. However, like I said, there's a discrepancy because Dion of Dion in the Belmont said, actually, I was the one that did the coin toss with Richie because I was going to go on this plane and not Waylon Jennings. Dion recants that Buddy said, quote, I've chartered a plane. We're the guys making the money. We should be the ones flying ahead. The only problem is there are only two seats available, end quote. And apparently, according to Dion, Dion ends up winning the coin toss. He ended up giving his seat to Richie because Dion didn't want to pay the fee, the $36 fee, which was equal to about one month's rent that Dion would usually pay in Brooklyn when he was living with his parents in their apartment. 
the story is known officially, factually, Richie the Big Bopper and Buddy Holly, they get on this plane. And what's so crazy about this too, before they get on the plane and leave the surf ballroom, at 10.30, Buddy calls his wife Maria. Buddy, however, neglected to tell Maria that he was going on this plane. His wife was having premonitions of Buddy dying in a plane crash and Buddy didn't want to scare his wife. That's crazy. That essentially ends where they are at the surf ballroom. After the show, Carol Anderson drives Buddy and Richie and the Big Bopper to the Mason City Airport, where at this time, they then board this rickety old plane with Roger Peterson as the pilot. Now, there was light snow with an obscured sky. Visibility was apparently six miles and winds that ranged from 20 to 30 miles per hour were taking place. There's no way that this plane ever should have taken off during this night. So this also is on fault to the Dwight Flying Services as well. Yeah, sure, Roger Peterson was a 21-year-old local pilot who had four years of training. He wasn't particularly trained with these kind of specific controls that this 47 Bonanza airplane had. So that also was a factor that came into this as well. It was just very, very unfortunate that all of these things happened. Apparently, as well, the weather was supposed to get even worse. And for some reason, Roger was not briefed on these weather conditions, these worsening conditions and the weather. I wonder if any of them thought maybe we shouldn't get on this plane because this is bad weather. But I also would imagine they're running on barely any sleep. They're probably not thinking clearly. Two of the men are sick with the flu. Buddy Holly is just pissed off and tired. He's like, I don't want to stay on this bus anymore. I just want to go and have a nice time and catch up on some sleep when we get on this plane. So unfortunately, they probably just were only trying to think uh, positively about this whole experience. And this ends up getting them, unfortunately, killed. I think that's incredible that Richie actually ends up going on the plane, knowing how he has a strong fear of flying. I was surprised to hear that. I would have imagined that Richie would have wanted to go on the bus. But he was that sick and that desperate to not stay on the bus that he was like, yeah, I'll get on this plane. Witnesses who were there this night reported that they were able to see the tail of the plane for most of its short flight that it had, which started with a 180-degree left turn to pass east of the airport, and then it climbed about 800 feet in altitude. And then from that point on, the plane took an extra left turn, and then it made a gradual descent until the plane disappeared from view of the airport runway, never to be seen again. Around 1 a.m., when Roger failed to make his usual radio contact, there was no way anybody was going to hear from Roger ever again. Unfortunately, they couldn't do anything at that point in time because they had to wait the following morning. And hopefully, they thought, we'll hear from Roger in the morning or something. The owner of this flying service, they end up going in another plane and they retraced the flight pattern that Roger would have supposed to have taken. But shortly thereafter, at around 9.35 in the morning, this was where he spotted the plane crash less than six miles from the airport. So six miles, that's not that far away at all. That may be, how long would that have been? Like maybe a 10, 15 minute flight, maybe not even something maybe like that. So they weren't even in the air for that long. So he spotted the wreckage and the wreckage ended up in a cornfield. So he called the police and the police were dispatched out to this cornfield. So the plane struck the ground 
at high speed at around 170 miles, and then it banked steep to the right and with the nose of the plane downwards. The right wing of the plane struck the ground first, and then as you can imagine, it kind of cartwheeled across this frozen field over and over and over again for about 540 feet until the plane had to stop because it hit a wire fence. So Buddy Holly and Richie Valens were immediately ejected from the plane and their bodies were found laying right near the plane. The big bopper, however, had been thrown over the fence and into the other cornfield. It's of my deduction that the big bopper was maybe sitting in the front row next to the pilot. Maybe Buddy Holly and Richie Valens were sitting next to each other in the two back passenger seats. And that's how that happened. Roger Peterson's body, however, was tangled inside the plane. It was bad. It took paramedics two hours to take his body out of the plane. That's how badly mangled he was up in that wreckage. So that's kind of how the layout of the plane crash ended up happening. So as as you can imagine, the plane and the three of the men that were ejected from the plane and then the pilot were all there overnight in the cold morning for hours. It helped them to determine how each of them died and what ended up happening. So Carol Anderson, who's the owner, like I said, of the surf ballroom, He was waiting for the rest of the band to show up to Minnesota, so therefore he was the one that had to identify the bodies because he was the first one to show up. County Coroner Ralph Smiley says that all four of them died instantly, of course, citing that the cause of death was, quote, gross trauma to the brain, end quote, for all the musicians and, quote, brain damage, end quote, for Roger the pilot. What's actually really interesting, the Big Bopper's son many, many, many years later, many years later, asked for his father's body to be exhumed, asked for a new autopsy to be performed because he thought somehow that maybe his father was ejected from the plane, but that he somehow survived the crash and that he had walked for a brief moment into that cornfield and then died succumbing to his injuries. So he wanted to know if his father survived initially the plane crash and then died after, or if he had died instantly. But upon this new inquest into this autopsy, it was, of course, yet again, discovered and determined that the Big Bopper had died instantly, of course, and you don't survive that. This is probably the saddest part, aside from the crash, of this entire story. Buddy Holly's wife, Maria, is at home minding her own business in New York City. She's waiting for Buddy to give her a ring, to tell her that he's fine. She puts on the news like anyone else would, right? She sees on the news three musicians die in a plane crash. Who other than her husband, Buddy Holly, was one of these victims that died in this plane crash? So Maria found out about the death of her husband literally in real time with the rest of the general population. And this caused her such psychological trauma that she would end up miscarrying her baby. And that's very traumatic. I mean, you not only lose your husband, but you then miscarry because of the stress. That's unfortunate. You know, Maria should not have heard about the death of her husband, especially like that, with everyone else. This is where, though, history is changed in another aspect. Because within months of Buddy Holly's death, protocols were then implemented to make sure 
that the names of victims involved in traumatic incidences aren't released by the police until the families of the victims have been notified first. So because of Buddy Holly and this situation, that protocol was then carried out literally and it will always be carried out. That essentially is the main crux of it all. Despite the death of Buddy and Richie and the Big Bopper, the Winter Dance Party Tour continued on. As the tour goes on, all funerals for the men held separately and they took place. Buddy and the Big Bopper were buried in Texas, Richie was buried in California, and Roger was buried in Iowa. Maria didn't attend the funeral of Buddy because she thought that she was to blame for his death because she says this, In a way, I blame myself. I wasn't feeling well when he left. I was two weeks pregnant, and I wanted Buddy to stay with me, but he had scheduled that tour. It was the only time I wasn't with him, and I blame myself because I know that if only I had gone along, Buddy never would have gotten into that airplane. End quote. It's so sad that she blames herself because she thinks that it was her fault. And so, again, they were all young, most of them with families, young families. And so a lot of tragedy just takes place around this whole entire situation. You can blame a lot of different factors for why this plane crash ended up happening in the first place. I mean, I think you could blame in part the production company for the fact that they made their musicians go on this really wacky tour for 24 days consecutively, no breaks, giving them nothing at all but a school bus to travel in that broke down all the freaking time and they were sick and tired of it. They were treated like second rate, second class citizens. That's crazy. The fact that the production company seemingly didn't give a shit about their stars at all. They were like, Let's let them freeze out there in the cold Midwestern winter scene out there and let's see how they do. So there's that aspect because if that never happened, Buddy would have never felt so antsy about getting on a plane and taking other modes of transportation. He just wanted to get some sleep and he just wanted to not have to get on that stupid bus anymore. And neither of them wanted to get on that bus either. So I don't blame them at all. I don't. You can also 1,000% blame the flying service that not only gave them a 21-year-old pilot who didn't have a lot of experience under his belt in that regard, but also letting them fly in those specific weather conditions was very, very stupid, practically a suicide mission. Like, did any of them have any second thoughts about going on this plane? I would imagine they did. But at the same time, I think, you know what? I'm just so tired. I'm tired. I just want to get to a hotel or something and just rest. They were just tired of it and they were desperate for any kind of solution to this problem. And poor buddy Holly, he was the one that really championed for this chartered plane. And no one else probably was going to suggest anything. And buddy Holly took the initiative, right? And that's fair enough, you know, but this is where professionals should have been like, no, you're not getting on a plane tonight. The weather's not suitable for this kind of flight. There's a lot of factors, but I think you can blame both sides. You can blame the production company, the touring company, for how they set up this tour in the first place to get them in this predicament, and then the flying company as well. That, in a nutshell, is the story of the day that the music died. And like I said, Don McLean, 
He was the one that created the song American Pie, where he dubbed it The Day the Music Died. So we have to thank him for that. So that entire song that we all know, right? American Pie, that's about this story. So thank you very much for listening. I hope that you guys have a wonderful day and I hope that you learned something that you hadn't known about before. I'll see you guys next Wednesday with another episode of On The Mix. Talk to you guys later. Bye, guys. Bye.